Hello and welcome to episode 39 of the Everyday Marksman, the podcast where it is all about tactical skills for living a more adventurous life. I'm your host, Matt Robertson. Our website is everydaymarksman.co and there you're going to find today's show notes as well as all of our previous shows, our blog articles, and our awesome community of marksmen. I'm glad you could join me today. Today's episode is back to an interview format with Mike Green, who is a 15-year veteran of special operations in the U.S. Army and operates one of the best training schools in the country. And Mike is also on the pro staff for ATACS and the Sons of Liberty Gunworks. Now, the setup for this interview is interesting to me because I actually did this recording back in June of 2020 before taking a break off the website, the podcast, and spending time with my family. But even though I recorded it months ago at this point, it is still extremely relevant. And the reason for that is because I wanted to talk to a training expert about the world of getting tactical skills when an emergency is afoot. And when I recorded this back in June, we were still thinking that COVID-19 wasn't going to last very long. These riots and protests were kind of just getting started. But here we are in September of 2020, and it is all still happening and even potentially ramping up. So the point of this conversation is to ask the expert, what does a training progression look like for the average civilian who just bought their first firearm and is trying to grow their marksman's trinity from the last episode where they're trying to grow that capability? What does that look like? Where do they start and how do they grow that over time? That is the question to keep in mind. So I hope you grab some pen and paper for some notes on this one because there is a lot of information here. And now if you are pressed for time, as always, you can jump to the last 10 minutes of the episode or so and I'll give you my key takeaways from this interview. Are you ready? Let's get into it. All right, Mike, welcome to the Everyday Marksman. Ah, Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. So uh, I got a little bit of your history in the intro here. So the quick version of that was I know you have 15 years, special forces, and then you started doing uh, contract work and training. And then along the way, you founded Green Ops as your kind of S corporation to get paid for contracting, but you started doing training on the side. So I want to know when was the first time you started teaching civilians? Um, I'd say primarily in uh, 2015 up in the Northern Virginia area. So I want to go back to that first class that you did. Uh, What, what was different in your experience about teaching civilians compared to the military and government contractors? Uh, I, well, the biggest thing is when civilians come to a class, you know, they are there to learn. So the one thing that I have found over and over again is that civilians, in my opinion, are far better students than military and law enforcement because they're paying to be there. They want to be there. They, they are there for a reason. Whereas, you know, the military, it's more like, hey, I have to be here. It's another day at the job. In my, in my day job, I, I'm the same thing. I, I train, just not tactical stuff, but I uh, teach software and things. But I do find that the people who actually have to pay to come are a lot more engaged in learning something out of it versus the ones who said, well, it's already been paid for, just go. Yes, yeah. And, and, and nine times out of 10, you know, a good portion of people are there uh, for a reason. You know, I get a good percentage of people that come to class because they're worried about something that's happened in their life where they think it's going to happen. Or like right now, our classes are filling up because of all the things that are going on in society right now. People are scared. People are worried. So 
of course, when that happens, classes typically fill up. Have you noticed a, a trend in the kinds of training? Is it mostly going to be concealed carry or, or more on the carbine side of things? Uh, you no, know, believe it or not, our carbine classes really sell out for whatever reason. Um, I think it's just the fact that people uh, went out of their way to purchase carbines when they thought they were going to be banned. And then next thing you know, a few years later, they realize that they need to get trained. So our carbine classes definitely. I think there's an interesting question in there about, I think everybody looks at the carbine training as sexy and cool because and we play it in video games, you see it in movies. But when it comes to like a real world scenario on the chances of actually having to shoot in anger for the average civilian are pretty low. And of those situations, is it more likely going to be a pistol or a carbine? Uh, I would say statistically speaking, it's going to be a pistol. But the truth is, is that a lot of people are turning to the AR carbine, AR variants or carbine for home defense, um, mainly because it can, you, know, you can hold 30 rounds in a magazine. Uh, people are starting to realize that there's less penetration issues with 5.56 than there are of most pistol caliber ammo. Today's students are far more educated than they were 15, 20 years ago. Uh, thanks to the internet and all the articles and podcasts like yours that are out there, people do their research before they go to training uh, or before they purchase a firearm. And when they do, they um, nine times out of ten are going to turn to the AR. Uh, they find that it's more accurate at shorter distances. Uh, think about the longest shot that you would have in your house, you know, uh, maybe a long hallway or something like that. And then have an average person take a pistol and shoot that distance, 15, 20 yards at a target, um, rapidly at night. You know, what's their odds of hitting it? Probably slim if they're not well trained. You give them a carbine, an AR, and the chances increase dramatically. Yeah, totally. And it's funny, you mentioned the, uh, the overpenetration of the 5.56, like people are kind of coming off of that, but I still see that all the time when people are giving bad advice. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's, there's plenty of articles that were written out there um, on the different ballistics, um, you know, the major units in the world that used uh, the MP5 back in the day, they did their research. You look at the main SWAT teams, they did the same thing, and they have all switched down to uh, 556 today. So they kind of related to that one. Just curious on your thoughts, because I feel like, in me, this is me being a gun nerd now, but I feel like there's been this resurgence of interest in the pistol caliber carbines like your scorpions and the uh, strybog and the b and t's of the world what do you make of that well i think a lot of that has to do with two things one is in a lot of competitions they started introducing it when they introduced it more people became aware of it uh, which of course it's a it's more shootable weapon uh, if you think about it and then two the other thing is just cost of ammunition so it's, it's, it's less expensive to shoot a 9 mil pistol caliber carbine than it would be a 5.56 uh, carbine. So you have got a lot of training under your belt. After 15 years of special forces, I know it's really common to bring in professional shooters and you work with them and you learn from them. So you, you've got to see a lot of things and learn from a lot of people. I'm curious through all of that, did you see common trends about like what they said was a good way to do things versus bad ways of doing things? Oh, oh, definitely, definitely. So, I, I, you know, when we teach a class, and this is one of the things I love about people when they teach classes, people want to be politically correct when they teach a class. They don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. And they'll say, hey, we're going to show you a way. 
uh, when we start off our classes, we tell everybody, hey, we're not just going to show you a way. We're going to show you the most efficient way used, not just by, you know, special forces, but also by, you know, your top law enforcement teams, SWAT teams, and your top competitors in the nation and worldwide. When you see all three or four of those organizations using it, then that's an indicator that's probably the best technique to use. Um, and people have a hard time with that. Um, but yeah, definitely we have seen, uh, you know, when these guys came in, you know, they would show us a way to do something and they would start off by telling us, look, we know nothing about tactics. All we know is how to make you shoot faster and more accurately. And that's what we want to do. And after that, we got along just fine. But we definitely saw um, these guys at these top, top levels teaching us the same things. And, you know, I eventually got into competition and became a master class USPSA shooter because of uh, the training that I received back then. I related to that then. How has your competition experience influenced how you train and, and what you train? So I, I look at it this way is, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's crazy training with some of the top competitors in the world. You know, we trained with, you know, Jerry Barnhart, Frank Garcia, you know, uh, guys like that at that caliber who were, you know, not just the, the greatest in the, in, in the nation, but they went to the world IPSC matches and they, you know, uh, represented America, the, the world team. And, uh, for us, you know, we started adopting some of their their methods, which are basically to to push the envelope. I mean, training you wanted to push the envelope, you know. Um, and so I started doing that in my training, and I noticed that people were typically going too slow. They were afraid to miss in training. So I want people to go past their limit, then know what it's like to come back. Um, it's 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 something I see time and time again, and I've adopted many of the different types of drills that they do in competition uh, for different reasons. And I've implemented them into my defensive training programs along with dry fire routines. So dry fire is huge. I've met uh, competitors who have uh, made a grandmaster while they shot less than 8,000 rounds that year. A guy named Ben Steger, you know, was out there. He, He did it in less than a year based on that. Now he's a world champion. Uh, another good friend of mine, Steve Anderson, you know, he is the dry fire king, if you will. Um, and his training philosophy rotates around dry fire. Um, so I've incorporated a lot of that uh, in regards to gear and training. I look at it like this. All serious competitors, especially at the top level, have two pistols when they go to a match, okay? a primary and a backup. Now, what most people don't know is that, that that backup is actually the training pistol. That's the gun they use in daily training and so on and so forth. And then when they go to a match, they have an identical uh, gun, got less wear and tear, brand new springs, and that's their competition gun. If that one breaks, then they have one to fall back on, and that's their training gun. So I look at it for civilians. I tell them if they're serious about training, you want to have two guns. You want to have a training gun, you want to have a carry gun. Because the last thing you want to do is put all that wear and tear on your, your, your carry gun. And then the day that you have to use it, find out, oh, I had a stovepipe because my spring was worn out. Or because I, 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 I used the uh, training magazine and uh, you know, the, the spring was bad on that. Or the feed that's wrong or something. So if you're serious about it, I always recommend to have two firearms um, and to look at the training uh, styles that are out there in the competition world and adopt them 
to uh, defensive shooting. And that's basically what I do. All my dry fire drills are based off competition drills. Um, and then I just go from there. So two things you mentioned there I want to ask about. Um, so I'll start with dry fire routines because I've, I've written a lot about dry fire in the past and its importance. And every, I think almost every competitor and precision shooter I've had on the podcast has talked about dry fire, dry fire, dry fire. Um, so what is a like reasonable everyday dry practice routine for you? So I take, um, I, I basically, I, and I recommend all our students is to buy um, Steve Anderson's book, Refinement and Repetition, because it has laid out all the drills. I take those drills and I go through them and I spend about 15 minutes to 30 minutes a day. Sometimes it may only be five minutes, but literally I work on the basics. And now you have to take into consideration what's your goal? What are you training for? Okay, if I'm training as an average everyday concealed carrier, then I'm going to do most of my, if not all my drills from concealment. If I'm training for competition, of course, I'll use a different rig um, and I'll practice more reloads and stuff like that. Whereas, you know, um, a concealed carrier is, is less apt to use a reload during the middle of an engagement. Okay? But I highly recommend that people take and look at these drills and modify them for what they want to do. So if a person wants to shoot, uh, maybe someone's on a SWAT team and they want to be good with their carbine, you can take those same drills that were designed for a pistol. Instead of starting from the holster, you can start from the high ready or the low ready and just continue on from there. Um, but there's a lot of uh, dynamic movement in some of them where you step to the left or you can step to the right or you can start from uh, you know, a turn position. Um, they may not have those in there, but you can add them at any given time. Think about you know, what would I do and how would I do it if I were to use my gun in self-defense. Um, and a good way to do that or to figure that out is to go to you know the resources that we have today, the internet, YouTube. Uh, John Korea runs uh, Active Self-Protection and has thousands and thousands of videos out there of uh, people getting into uh, self-defense situations using a firearm. And you can look at those and say, okay, well, what, what's, what's the majority of them doing? Are they dynamic? Are they stationary? You know, how do they start? How do they end? Oh, he's got, he's got another series of questions, but I have to go through my other one first. <laughs> um, so you also mentioned you have like your favorite drills that come from the competition world and then you use those uh, for training. What are your favorite drills? So my favorite drills are ones where I get multiple skills trained out of one drill. So for example, the build drill. I love the build drill because it practices, you know, not just a fast draw, but follow-up shots too. Um, and in order to have good follow-up shots, you got to have a good stance and a good grip. So by working the build drill, you know, I'm obviously I'm working the draw, but by working follow-up shots, trying to reduce my splits, it means I have to have a good, perfect grip and that I've got to have a good stance. If I don't have those, then I'm going to have a slower run, which makes me go back and analyze what did I do wrong and why did I do it and how do I fix it. Um, another drill that I like to do is called the Blake drill, which is basically uh, a build drill, but instead of one target, you have three targets. So you shoot two rounds at each target. The goal is to try to have a similar time frame on the build drill that you would the Blake drill. Both are shot. You can shoot them at seven or 10 yards. It doesn't matter, but you 
want to keep it the same for when you do it uh, both times. So Bill Drill and Blake Drill. I will definitely leave uh, descriptions of those on this article. All right. Um, so the other thing you mentioned there that, that uh, I wanted to come back to was uh, you mentioned the step to the side kind of thing. And I, I always wonder, and I've seen this happen before, actually it's happened to me before, where someone gets used to doing something particular on the range for a drill, but without context. And then, and then when you actually get put into a situation, you do that thing that was appropriate for the range, but is really not what you should have done. So um, I shall just give the story on this one. So I was, I was doing a small unit tactics course. Of course, run a square range, target down the range, and we were doing reload and malfunction drills. And the way they were they were handling it was that reloads are still the same thing as a stoppage, effectively. So you, if you had to run out of ammo, you had to get to cover, reload, let everybody know you were loading, get back in, fire two shots. And by but the way you did that because it was a square range was to kneel, so that we go out to a, a jungle lane where we're doing this with actual people against uh, pop-up targets and we're moving down the lane and I run dry <laughs> and I drop to a knee right there in the middle of the, in the middle of the path versus going to cover. And they're like, what are you doing? I'm like, good. Oh, <laughs> got it. Um, have you ever seen that kind of thing happen to people a lot? Um, I have, but the, the thing is, is that, you know, the goal is to build thinking shooters. You know, that, that's the goal of when we do something. So we always try to say when we do a drill, why we do the drill. If I tell you to drop down and do push-ups because it'll make your, your pecs, your triceps stronger and your shoulders stronger so that you can be better at throwing a punch in a fight, that doesn't mean in the middle of the fight you're going to get down and start doing push-ups. So take it in context. Why is the drill there? You know, I'm doing push-ups so that I can you know, throw a better punch. You know, if I'm doing a build drill, I'm doing it so I can have a you know, a better stance, a better grip, and a faster draw. Um, you know, a lot of people are, you know, I've heard people say that, you know, hey, the, the build drill is not really a good defensive drill because you're firing six shots at a, at a target, you know. How can that, you know, be uh, uh, defensible in court? I'm like, well, because people seldom stop after being shot two to three times, you know. You see a lot of this step to the side stuff, and uh, there's a time to do it and a time not to. In a lot of places, they want to do it all the time. Um, the truth is that um, you know, if you're moving left or right, you're slowing down your draw. But the truth is, is that in, in the scenario, you may be standing and the guy who has the firearm pointed towards you, you may look away. If you move left and move right, you may move the cover. So that may be the right time to do it. So you have to take it in context and think about the situation and everything around you. And again, the goal is to build thinking shooters so that they're more aware in general, not just of what they're doing on a flat range, but ideally in the real world. So that kind of goes to this question of range theatrics that, that I've seen get brought up before for things that start off as a good idea, lose context. And then you see people just do it for the sake of doing it. I think one example I've seen is like that quick glance left and right, like you're scanning but you're doing it so quickly, you're not actually seeing anything. Uh, yeah, that's a great example. So, you know, I get, you know, I teach, the, you know, I teach people to scan. And then I hear people say, oh, that's theatrics, that's theatrics. And I'm like, listen, you have to listen to the persons that are saying it and what the background is and what they're saying. They're saying if you just, you know, move your head left and right and don't look, that that's range theatrics. 
But if you, and one, one of the things we do is you know, on occasion in a class is we'll, we'll have the instructors in the back maybe hold up a hand with a, you know, three fingers, four fingers or something like that. And then asking the student afterwards, hey, how many fingers were they holding up? You know? Um, and they're like, what are you talking about? Well, if they don't know, then, then that was arranged theatric because that means they weren't looking. The, the, the truth is that there's, uh, there'll be a, always be a naysayer, you know, uh, for something. And they'll always find something wrong or something. But let's look at it in what context is brought up. You know, if, if I'm, you know, just you know, spinning my head left and right without the actual ability to look left and right, I don't see what I'm looking at, then what good is it? But if I'm actually able to you know, see, hey, you know, the instructor had three fingers up, then that means that they, they were looking. You know, they're looking for something. Um, on occasion, I've been, I've taught other executive protection, PSD type courses where I'll hold a target up in the back that's, uh, you know, holding a knife, a gun, or something like that. And I just uh, have the individuals yell it out if they see it first. So I'm kind of curious, this goes into kind of a, another question. Uh, so I've heard it said before that you have one of the best concealed carry classes probably in the country. What is it that you think you're doing that really sets that up? Um, well, uh, I think the biggest thing is that, you know, my covert carry course is, is, is based off of my time spent um, a lot of it overseas, carrying in different environments, not just war-torn environments, but environments that people would not anticipate someone to be armed in. Um, and in those regions, in those areas, regardless of whether you're authorized or not, let's say you're authorized by the U.S. government, even the government that's there hosting you. Um, but if you get caught by the local authorities, you, regardless, you've just created an international incident because everyone loves to hate on Americans, right? Um, so because of that, you have to be able to carry the firearm, but it also has to be accessible because more than likely you're carrying a pistol and bad guys are probably carrying carbines or AK, Kalashnikovs or something nature. So is what I do is I take um, concealed carry techniques and I talk about the different ways to covertly carry those firearms. And the other th- side to it is is how to rapidly access them. And is what I do is I use a lot of time standards from USPSA or competition and I have people repeat those uh, from concealment where in the past people had said those will, you can never shoot that fast or draw that fast from concealment. And I've had people be able to draw from concealment or a really good concealable position um, in under a second, sub-second draws. And they, they leave flabbergasted, like, oh, my gosh, I, I can't believe I did that. Um, but at the same time, it's very concealable. You know, I mean, think about, like, um, you know, up in northern Virginia. You know, I have friends that live in Maryland that have concealed carry permits. How many people are there in Maryland that actually have a concealed carry permit? Oh, I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, 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 it was probably like five or six. <laughs> so think of it from the perspective of law enforcement. Right? So if you're in an area where, you know, people aren't carrying concealed because they're not allowed, uh, they're very serious about who they allow to carry a firearm in Maryland. Uh, if the police officer sees someone who's legally carrying a firearm, what's the first thing that they think? They're probably not allowed. Exactly. So, in a position like that, and look at look at uh, now DC, you can conceal carry, but the same thing's going to apply there um, because there's so few people that are actually authorized to carry. 
So in those manners and places like that, I highly recommend that someone actually go through the concealment clauses. In Virginia, it's totally opposite. You could see people, you know, with, with a pattern of a firearm, you see people open carry, and law enforcement just turns the other way because the assumption there is Fairfax County has one of the highest uh, concealed carry permit issues in the, in the country. You know? So um, to them, it's just another day that you, know, you go a few miles north or east and uh, next thing you know, you're in an area where you have to really look at the way you're carrying. You know, what are what are the ramifications? You know, and I break it down also in covert carry, concealed carry, and just kind of like um, um, low profile. Um, and then I, I look at the different places that I have been where you know when I was in Iraq, it was more of a low profile. So you know uh, you would just throw something over your uh, your body armor. Uh, from a distance, you know, it was hard to tell, but as you got closer, it was uh, it's obviously, you know, it's someone with, uh, you know, a shirt over body armor. You know, but, you know, it gave you that split second you needed to get off the X before they realized that. That's more of a, of a, you know, a low profile. But in that regards, what are the ramifications? Well, since we're the occupying force at the time when we first got there, there zero to none, right? Um, you look at concealed carry in Virginia as a good example. You can pattern, not have to worry about it. Uh, ramifications, the police officer asks for your ID and you show them. You know? um, and then, of course, we, as we discussed, D.C. and Maryland, or maybe you're working for the government overseas and you're invited in that country, but yet the local police see you with that firearm. Now you've got you just created an international incident, which could be an embarrassment to uh, the people that you're working for or, you know, mm-hmm. in that country. So a couple of things you just mentioned in there, like the printing, uh, for instance, or what are some of the most common mistakes you see when it comes to concealed carry? Um, I think that the, the biggest thing is not having the proper holster. Um, people will buy holsters, um, deep concealment type holsters, and then not have accessibility to them. So I like to test a good concealed holster. And I've done the same thing. I've got in the holster and I've, Got it. I tried it on. And I said, "Wow, oh, this is a really great holster." And then I get it to the range, and I find out you know, it's not that great of a holster. You know? um, and, and of course, dry fire—you can do that too before you go to the range. But that's you know that's the other thing. Um, but even even I, I like to test a good holster by wearing it for about thirty days. You know, you, you wear it while you drive, while you're eating, and stuff like that around the house, you know, out to restaurants. You wear it as much as possible to see the pros and the cons of it. But I'd say the biggest mistake right there is, you know, not having the proper holster is really one of the biggest mistakes I see out there. Uh, the second biggest mistake I see in general is people not having the firearm. Uh, people have a permit and then they won't carry it, or they'll leave it in the glove box, or they'll leave it under the car seat, something of that nature. The firearm does no good if you don't have access to it. It's not on you. The final thing is training. got to get training. I just I can't cannot stress that enough, and I'm not just saying that because I run a training company, um, because people can go out there and take training from other people. They can you know get on the internet and try to find different things, try to self train, do what they want in regards to that. YouTube or just you know ask for advice, but they have to train. It doesn't matter who you're training with, but you, you have to train. You know, uh, Jeff Cooper years ago sets up the effect of owning a Mm-hmm. You know, you <laughs> I have more questions that just brought up for me. <laughs> so first off, um, 
when you said you, you would try a holster out for 30 days before you said if this is a good one or a bad one, what makes you decide whether it's a holster you want to keep using? The biggest thing for me is accessibility. Can I access the firearm? Or if not, can I modify the, the holster to allow that? So, you know, today's holsters, a lot of them, you know, they'll allow you to move them up and down and stuff like that. So there's some places out there where they'll, they'll talk about having deep concealment, but the deeper inside the waistband goes, the harder it is to, to actually access rapidly. Um, so I, I do that. Um, I also look at um, the ability to get to it while I'm seated in a car. Comfort is not uh, that. It's a, it's a little bit of an issue with me, but not that big of an issue. Um, I realize there's always going to be discomfort in carrying a firearm. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that's basically it, you know, accessibility and uh, the ability to make it uh, not just accessibility, but to retain itself where it's at. You know, I don't want it moving around me and I definitely don't want the firearm to fall out. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing you mentioned there was was training. And I think there's an important point that needs to get made about training doesn't end with your, your four-hour concealed carry class. Like, what really is that next step that you're going to learn by going to professional training? So I always tell people, and that's kind of our motto is, you know, green ops, uh, you know, why should your training be less special? Um, and, and that basically refers to the special operations units, SWAT teams, uh, you know, they get some of the best training in the world. Uh, my question is, you know, why should your training be less special? Think about this. The average law enforcement person, if they accidentally shoot a good guy while they're arresting a bad guy, they have qualified immunity. But as a civilian, we don't have a duty to arrest somebody. By that rationale, our training standards as civilians need to be higher. The average police officer is trained at 40 to 80 hours of firearm training. And then each year, they do a qualification, which is supposed to be training. Um, some places would do it quarterly. But that qualification is not training. So I always recommend to people, if they can conceal carry, if they go out and get about three courses the first year that they're going to consider carry. So you buy your firearm, you save up your money, and then you look at the schedules out there of the different trainers you want to train with. If they're two-day courses and you take, uh, you know, uh, three courses, you know, uh, well, then you've exceeded that 40 hours, if you think about it. Uh, that's six days, right? Um, and uh, then after that, I would recommend that you take one course at a minimum of year. That's 16 hours extra of training each year. But if you think about it from a, a defensible, um, you know, in court, you know, how much training do you have? Well, you've exceeded most law enforcement standards because you're getting 16 hours a year, whereas most of them are only getting a qualification maybe once a quarter at the best. I think that's a really good point about the the legal side of it. I think some people sometimes get scared between if I go get a lot of training and and the reverse happens, why are you getting so much training? Do you think you're Rambo? Were you looking for trouble? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely, um, you know, something to think about. But, you know, uh, it's mitigation if you really think about it. And, and one of the things, you know, I mean, I recommend to people just in general, you know, uh, there's certain life skills that everyone should have. You know, being able to fight, use a firearm, um, get training. Uh, everyone should be able to drive. If you're going to drive, I'd recommend you get defensive driving also. You know, um, Think about this. If you show up to uh, an encounter or a violent uh, interaction with someone, is there a gun involved? 
well, yeah, because you have one, so you just brought the gun, you know? So, <laughs> you know, and it's not just for firearms. You know, think about it from the perspective of, uh, you know, you could potentially save someone's life. You know, I teach a lot of active shooter types um, training out there. And one of the things that we saw when we were doing our studies for that was that the majority of people who were who die in active shooter situations uh, bleed out because law enforcement and medical personnel can't get to them in time. So the people around them don't know what to do. So if you have medical training, you potentially save someone else's life, not just your own life. But, you know, uh, as responsible citizens and adults, you know, we should all have some kind of medical training. You know, not just Boy Scouts and military people, but why not everybody? Oh, I totally agree. I, I, the, I really like the idea of the adult skills angle on that, you know, how to fire a gun, uh, how to drive medical care. I think cooking, starting a fire, you know, basic survival skills. I think they're all just stuff people should learn how to do again. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, uh, so are you still in Northern Virginia? Yep. Yeah. So, you know, there's, um, I think it's down near Fredericksburg. I can't remember, but I had wanted to take my older son to a, the guy taught a outdoor survival course over the weekends. It just kind of uh, never got the time, but you know, my son graduated high school. But you know, I, I constantly took him to uh, to the range and taught him things. But you know, the, the earlier you start teaching children these skills, you know, um, when they become our age, they're not wishing, "Hey, I wish I had these skills." You know, now I have to go out and pay for them or, or whatever. But uh, you know, I, I believe all children should be involved in something. Martial art, uh, particularly Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. Um, and then as they get older, they can get into other things. But definitely, uh, survival skills are out there. They're key. You know, everybody should know how to just, you know, pull the string on an arrow or bow and you know how to let it go without hurting itself. Mm-hmm. So, I guess we have a couple couple minutes left. I really have two lines of questions left then. Um, so, this is rather timely um, because we are kind of still in the midst of COVID virus lockdown, but also now we're seeing protests and riots, like huge increases number of gun owners out there and people want to know how to get started. Like you mentioned earlier, it's growing in popularity. So for you, what does that progression look like? If someone's interested in protecting their neighborhood, uh, their home, their communities, you know, whatever, what is that progression from? I just bought my first gun to, I can at least be useful. You know, it's, it's tough. I mean, um, you know, if someone's bought a firearm and they have no knowledge about it at all, the first thing you need to do is you need to learn and become familiar with uh, firearms manipulation. For example, they bought a carbine, an AR variant. You know, they need to realize the best way to load and unload and just get good at that general safety, how to take it off safety, when to put it on safety, how to keep the finger straight, um, Loading and unloading because you see it time and time again when people show up to a carbine uh, course, they typically just have a problem with getting the magazine seated. That that's basically where I would start. And um, we're not running any type of uh, two-man tactics courses right now. We have in the past, but there are other folks out there that do that are in the area. You know, um, and still carry, of course, you take the, the required training for. Um, but competition is another great place. I'm a huge advocate of people getting out there and shooting competitions and learning how to manipulate their gun in a fast, rapid, accurate manner. Um, I think that's really uh, one of the biggest things out there. You know? So th- 
the progression for then is going to be get those fundamentals, the basic manipulations, which honestly doesn't need to be, to me, doesn't need to be a very long process. You can learn the basics pretty quick, and then you move on to the basic usage and marksmanship, how to be safe while doing it, and then get competition to really hone things. Does that kind of sound reasonable? Yeah, and, and I've done tons and tons of videos with uh, Trigger Time TV, and their YouTube channel has you know most of the videos out there, not just from me, but other subject matter experts you know out there. Um, but you can go to you know, our YouTube channel, Trigger Time TV. Not only has my videos that they that I produced with them, but um, the, the other subject matter experts out there uh, that they've hosted on their TV show, um, and um, you know. You just, YouTube, other stuff, but I would say you run, uh, uh, you're, you're, you're more likely to find more subject matter experts on Trigger Time TV's YouTube, or, you know, if you're just starting off looking, you know, if you know what you're looking for, then you look for the other professionals out there and you can go to their individual channels. And I'm sure that they have, uh, uh, information or you know, different videos of them doing basic stuff and advanced stuff. That you can learn from too. Cool. I will definitely leave all those links down there. So I've uh, one more thing I want to kind of go on here and it's not so much the shooting related, but it's something that's kind of near and dear to what I, what I try to preach. Um, aside from the shooting side of it, what about the mindset side of it? Like, what do you think of that? Uh, so, you know, the mindset is, is, is extremely important. And I, I don't think enough people really realize that, especially with people with military and law enforcement backgrounds, because you know, we're constantly going through these, these we're, we're indoctrinated, so it becomes second nature. Um, but, I, you know, I would teach classes on mindset to people, civilians that were living overseas, so it became a realization to me that, hey, not everybody thinks like people who are in the military as far as, you know, in regards to awareness or, you know, what they could potentially have to do how to flip that switch to go from being a nice person to now have to not be nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's kind of, it made me think of it too, because you were talking um, about all those adult skills going martial arts or getting, getting physically fit, getting training, all these things. And I think that's a, a certain kind of mentality to keep driving to improve like that, that I don't think a lot of people really espouse anymore is, is a virtue. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, I totally agree. You know, I mean, in today's society, you know, we have to look at the way that we are becoming kinder and gentler, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. But the realization is that we as a society may be, but the truth is that the bad guy and predator is not thinking that way. As society tells us that, hey, you know, we have to show our feelings, the one feeling that they don't want you to show is anger. You know, <laughs> Uh, you can show them all, but that one, you know. Um, but um, I mean, it's those are things that we need to realize that we have to sometimes show anger um, if we're going to be in an aggressive situation and defend ourselves. You know. All right, I have one question left, and it's the one that I asked everybody. But Mike, if you could have people stop doing something right now, what would that be? Yeah, one of the biggest things that I um, that I I. I'd say for, for shooting, I really dislike it when someone shoots and then immediately brings the gun down, you know, without follow through. Um, I, I, 
don't know. I, I would have to say that's now because the other thing I really don't like is especially with new shooters is uh, you know, flagging the support hand with a, with a pistol to trying to reholster. Yeah. Okay. I, I feel like because I interviewed Jeff Gerwich, I think he said the same thing about the follow through. Oh uh, yeah, and you know it's funny because when you when you hear upper level instructors that have you know, similar backgrounds, you, you start hearing similar things. You know, um, and I've had instructors ask me, for example, "Oh man, have you ever trained with Frank Proctor?" And I was like, "No, I haven't, but we used to work together." You know, <laughs> so. Uh, all right. Well, Michael, it's been a pleasure to talk to you today. If anybody wants to find you or get more information, where should they go? Of course, we have Instagram and Facebook. Um, but the best deal is go to our, our main site, www.green-ops.com, and go to our, our contact us. If they need to reach us, it's info at green-ops.com. And uh, you know, we usually get back in a day or so. But yeah, that's probably the best way to reach us. Uh, you, know, you can go to uh, Ron Trigger Time TV. Um, it's our seventh or eighth season that we've done shows with them. Uh, they can check us out on their stuff, their, trigger, their, their Facebook, their Instagram, their main site. We're on there also. Um, and then also we started working. I'm on the pro staff now for Atax Camo. And then now uh, on with... Um, Sounds like a little bit here in San Antonio. Cool. All right, Michael. Well, thank you for coming on today. It's been a pleasure talking to you. All right, let's talk about the takeaways from this interview with Mike Green. I know there were a lot. I hope you enjoyed this episode. But as always, I have to narrow it down to three things I want to go back and review with the end of this and, and kind of leave you with. Number one is the relationship between competitors and drive fire. And Mike made a point early on in the interview where he was talking about people making Grandmaster while shooting less than 8,000 rounds per year. Now, this is interesting to me for two reasons. Number one, shooting 8,000 rounds per year is still a lot of ammunition to the average person. I'm just going to go ahead and call that fact out because even though from his perspective, that's that's not that much ammo per year. To the average person, that's a lot of ammo per year. Uh, and this is when you're doing it with a ton of really good dry fire routines. So this just goes again, goes to show you how much time and effort people at the top levels of shooting actually put in to get where they are. And I don't think it's fair for the average person to put that to put themselves under that kind of pressure when when that's just not realistic, it's not going to put in that kind of time. So you don't need to worry about buying all the latest and greatest and whiz-bang things to make yourself the coolest guy in the world when you're not actually putting in that time. That's not to say you can't build a ton of skill on a really good dry fire routine. And Mike specifically called out the book Refinement and Repetition by Steve Anderson, which I did buy after this interview, and I'll be putting a review of it up on the site eventually. Um, but yeah, dry fire is huge. It's a great tool for learning and practicing and refining those skills over time. And you can do a lot with some really basic drills. Takeaway number two was actually when we talked about what Mike looks for in a holster, as well as things that people do wrong. 
And I thought it was important to call out that he highlights two key features he cares about. Number one is that the holster has good accessibility, that he can get to the gun when he needs to get to it, whether he's sitting or eating in a restaurant or out with his family, but he can get to it. And he suggests that you should try and live with that holster for 30 days and see how it goes. And number two on that was retention. How well does that pistol keep, excuse me, how well does that holster keep the pistol, both the pistol in your, in wherever you're holding it, but also how well does that holster retain its own position? Nowhere in that list did he mention comfort. Comfort is not important. You should not be worrying how comfortable something is, otherwise you're not gonna carry it. I get it, and, and Mike even called it out, acknowledge that not everybody is that hardcore, so comfort probably is a factor, but when you're out there shopping for something and you know you wanna carry it, you have to worry about accessibility, and you have to worry about how well it's going to keep its position and keep the pistol safe. I would also throw in there, you should probably be concerned with concealability. Uh, Mike gave the examples of depending on where you live, if you print a little bit and your pistol shows through your shirt, well, if it's really common to have carriers around there, nobody would probably care that much. But if you're in a state like Maryland, which is notorious for not having anybody ever legally concealed carrying, and somebody spots a print, you're probably gonna have some problems. And number three on my takeaways has to do with the relationship between training and legal matters. Now, Mike is not giving legal advice and nor am I giving legal advice, but I thought his the way he phrased this arrangement was interesting. And from his perspective, the average police officer, and he said, I had to edit it a little bit out for some clarity in there, but he said the average police officer, depending on the school they go to for police academy, is gonna get 40 to 80 hours of firearms training before they leave the academy. And then once a year, maybe once a quarter, they do qualification. And I've heard repeatedly, both from many of my own guests and others, that qualification is not training. So in reality, most police officers, if they're not super motivated on their own, are probably getting 40 to 80 hours of firearms training and then the occasional qualification. And they get qualified immunity, meaning that if they shoot the wrong person, they shoot a good guy during an arrest, they can't be held liable for that legally. Not to say they don't have other career ramifications for that, but they can't be arrested or, or sued for that qualified immunity. You and I don't get that. So why wouldn't we in the court of law want to be able to say that we at least at least meet the minimum requirement that every law enforcement officer is going to get at the same time? How many people out there do you know who get their carry permit, go to the four hour class and then never see training again? And then if they have to find themselves in a court of law defending the fact that they took that shot to save their own life, there's a good chance that somebody may hold up to them. Well, how well trained were you? And if you could turn around and say that, well, I've got more training and competition experience than the average law enforcement officer, I think that's going to carry quite a bit better. What do you think? I could be wrong. All right, that will wrap up my takeaways for this episode. Thank you again for coming by. Once again, this is episode 39. You can come by the website at everydaymarksman.co and you can find the show notes and leave a comment. While you're there, make sure to click on that big green subscribe button so you get on the email list. And that way I can keep you informed of all the new articles that come out every week, as well as what's going on within the community. I promise I do not spam your inbox. And hey, while you're at it, you can buy and join our community of Marksmen. All right, that will do it for me. Thank you for listening and I will catch you next time.